Mayim Shacharazani, and in the news, Hezbollah's recent provocations on Israel's northern border. Is a confrontation looming in the horizon? And what will Israel do next? Joining us all the way from Northern Israel is our good friend, Lieutenant Colonel Reserve Sarit Zahavi. She is the founder and CEO of the Alma Research and Education Center and one of Israel's leading experts in this field. It's always worth noting that Sarit lives with her husband and five children in the village of Kfar Vradim, located in the Western Galilee region of Northern Israel. Sarit, it's always a pleasure to have you with us on JBS. Thank you, it's my pleasure. So let's let's first, for the sake of our viewers who may not have followed, you know, events in the recent you know month or so, what were uh, those recent provocations by Hezbollah on Israel's northern border? First, I must say it's not exactly provocations. You know, launching rockets to Israel, thirty-six of them, it's not provocation. Sending a terrorist to explode in Israel, it's not a provocation. Uh, launching an anti-tank missile endangering IDF soldiers towards a, a town. It's not, a, it's not a provocation. All of these are terrorist attacks. Uh, around that, we can see crossing of the blue line, stealing a camera, a lot of frictions between IDF and, uh, and Hezbollah military operatives or Lebanese army uh, soldiers, uh, you know, climbing on the fence, putting their flags on, on the fence, creating uh, damages to the barrier between uh, Lebanon and Israel. These are provocations, but you understand that something here is happening that it's, uh, it's, it's more than just provocations. The, the, word should, the framing should be completely different. Remind us, uh, uh, please, Sari, the, uh, the missiles you were referring to, launching of 36 missiles into Israel, took place when? Last Passover. Last uh, Passover. Actually, above my home. I'm speaking to you from my bomb shelter at home, <laughs> two square meters at home. And last Passover, I had many guests here. And it was a holiday, and we were celebrating the holiday. And everything was happening in the sky just above us. And I, you know, I couldn't have uh, 30 people in the shelter because it's too small. So we, we just continue eating and film the interceptions of the rockets. And uh, thank God for Iron Dome, you know. Yeah, but so we're not talking here about something that's happening in only in the last month or two. Exactly. And I think this is also something that is important to clarify. The change of policy of Hezbollah happened around a year and a half ago when I started to see them uh, on the border in a way that I didn't see them since 2006. So, you know, uh, uh, officers and soldiers that served in the Israeli-Lebanese border before 2006, before the previous war between Israel and Hezbollah, when they come to the border now, they tell me, Sarit, it's what the news, this is, this is the reality. This is how we used to see Hezbollah on the border. But after 2006, things have changed and Hezbollah tried to conceal its activity in South Lebanon. And even if we saw them here and there on the border, it was very unusual and they were very careful for many provocations. Today, the situation is different. They deliberately creating provocations now everywhere on the border with military positions that it's really easy to identify. You don't need a binacular or anything. And they're wearing uniforms, they're wearing these uh, commando masks, so nobody will be able to, to identify them. Um, this is completely military activity all along the border, while the UN is actually not there uh, to do anything around it. You know, we, we remember that um, 
shortly, uh, only recently during a visit of Israel's chief of staff, Herzia Levy, during a Yesterday. visit. Yeah, when, when, when Hezbollah released uh, footage of that visit on the border. So here is another thing. This footage, uh, this happened two weeks ago, and yesterday he was at the border again. So I right. don't remember a visit of the head chief of staff, uh, two visits in two weeks. This is something that I did. I, I really don't remember that happening in recent years. Right. Um, in your opinion, and you are the most expert opinion anybody could have on the topic, do you think that they're edging, Hezbollah is edging for a, an armed confrontation with Israel? Look, there are uh, all the time, even in, inside Alma Center, debates of what exactly Hezbollah wants, what, what's exactly the goal. And, and I want to divide it um, to confrontation, to the question around confrontation or war, and to the question around achievements, okay, achievements on the border, achievements uh, for Lebanon. This is very important because when we speak about, in general, whether Hezbollah is interested in what kind of conflict is interested, there are two options here, and it's really uh, difficult to evaluate. One option is that it is interested in war, because that way uh, maybe more money will come to Lebanon, maybe the Israeli military efforts will go towards Lebanon rather than towards Iran, uh, maybe because it needs to justify its uh, existence for its own uh, military operatives that you know, ended the war in Syria. They are not in Syria anymore in the past few years. And no excuses anymore not to do anything and just to patrol on the border. Uh, and this is in very brief, okay? Um, on the other hand, maybe Hezbollah evaluates that uh, Israel is not going to retaliate with extreme measures and going to war for all these uh, testing the water provocations and terrorist attacks. So why not try more and more? And we actually see an escalation uh, in the activity of Hezbollah, including the tents that were positioned south to the blue line a few months ago, and IDF didn't didn't take them off. They are still one of them is list is still there. So this is I, one I, issue. Explain that for, for explain that to us for a minute, sorry. The the whole issue with the tents. So Hezbollah ventures into Israeli territory, um, builds those two tents, teasing Israel, and Israel does not respond? Israel responded, but not in a violent way. And it is much more complicated than that. And in order to, to understand that, we need to go back a year ago to the maritime border dispute that was solved diplomatically rather than war. Meaning that what happened in the maritime border dispute is that Hezbollah, again, for the first time in well, 16 years, Hezbollah threatened to go to war. It, it said very clearly, either it's war or there is an agreement. And eventually there was an agreement since Israel gave up its, its uh, position in the past decade, okay? The, the maritime border was marked due to the Lebanese position in the past decade. We got the gas, which is great. They are now searching for the gas. This is great. But Hezbollah understood that maybe, okay, maybe it can do more. And I think it was another layer in the change of policy that already happened before the maritime border agreement. How is that connected to the tent? The tents are all about the land border dispute, okay? Uh, when Israel had withdrawn from Lebanon, we the Lebanese announced that though the UN recognized the Israeli withdrawal, there are 16 reservations. Now it's gonna get more complicated than that, okay? So listen carefully. It's 13 reservations 
and three more in an area which is highly complicated because it's an it's a border that used to be between Syria and Lebanon, and we took it from Syria in 1967, and now it's Israeli. The name is Mount Dove, Shiva Farms, doesn't matter. Okay, in this area, this is where the tents are. So the tents are crossing the blue line into what is today Israel, but used to be Syria. Okay, now in the eyes, when we had redrawn and the UN marked the border, Hezbollah came and said, no, this is not, this was not Le uh, Syrian area that Israel took, it's Lebanese area that Israel took. So, so is it a Lebanese-Syrian <laughs> conflict? So it, it, it should be a conflict between Lebanon and Syria, but actually Syria is not saying anything around that. And we ended up in a situation that it's a territory that we annexed in, 18, in 1981, and the Lebanese, we annexed and, and we assume we annexed and we took it from Syria. And Lebanon is saying, no, 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 this is Lebanon. To create a, 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 a further you know, a complexity around that, there is only one town in this area named Raja. All the people of the town are Israeli citizens. Half of them are living in what used to be Syria, is Israel today. And half of them are living in what the UN is saying this is Lebanon. They mark the blue line in the middle of the town. Now, if you will come to this town, which is a beautiful, beautiful I think it's the, the most beautiful uh, Arab town in Israel, really, the, if it's in Israel, most beautiful town. The people are Israelis. They have an Israeli ID. They can vote in elections. They are loyal Israeli citizens. But, you know, all of a sudden, if you check uh, Google, in, in, when you stand there, you see you're standing in Lebanon. And Hezbollah is now saying, I am going to fight for that. I am going to fight for these 16 points of reservation along the land um, uh, border. And I'm going to fight for Raja, specifically for this town, which is clear to all of us that Israel will not divide the town. Right. Uh, this is a humanitarian issue. And, and, and again, which brings us to the, to the previous question, does Hezbollah wants war? Because it's clear to everybody that we are not going to evacuate the northern part of the town. Right. So, so what the, the reality that you're describing to us, I mean, those tents, so we had two at the beginning, and then one of them was removed by Hezbollah, I imagine, right? They withdrew one of them. Why did they do that and leave the other? So as I've said, there is, the Israeli response went to the diplomatic channel, and uh, we went to the UNIFIL, which did nothing, and then we went to the UN, and we put a lot of pressure that these tents will be evacuated, and, and there was a lot of pressure on the government of Lebanon. And eventually, probably one tent was evacuated, as far as we understand. We don't have images to, to confirm that. Uh, but probably one tent was evacuated, and yet all the armed military combatants of Hezbollah are still there, though they are not supposed to be there at all. They are not supposed to be in South Lebanon at all, and this is not happening. Uh, and, and, and exactly, you know, this is exactly the game that Hezbollah and the Lebanese government were playing, because they said, okay, we cross the blue line here. Israel, you're crossing the blue line in Raja. And, and that way, in my point of view, it was a mistake to go to the diplomatic channel in this issue. We should have just taken off the tents uh, when it started. Now it became... Wait, why didn't we? I'm sorry? Why didn't, we? Why didn't Israel do just that? Because Israel because... was trying to be very, very careful from escalating the situation. Uh, that's, that's my answer. You know, we are dealing with so many fronts and... Uh, 
everywhere it's not calm and internal issues as well. So Israel was trying to be very careful not to get into any escalation. We made it very clear for everybody that Israel is not interested uh, in any war, any escalation uh, throughout the years, by the way, not only at this specific time. Right. Uh, I, I think it was a mistake, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's okay to go in the diplomatic channels. So this, this specific issue, it was a mistake. Right. Um, what... You know, before you mentioned the term internal issues, and before we touch on Israel for a minute, I'd like to ask you about Lebanon. No better expert than you uh, in northern Israel looking into Syria, Lebanon, Hezbollah, and beyond. What is happening inside Lebanon at the moment? We haven't heard about this, you know, the, the economic crisis, the explosion in the Beirut port, Hezbollah, the Christians. What's going on in Lebanon um, internally? This is a kind of more of the same, but escalating uh, in the past few years, meaning that uh, Lebanon today doesn't have a president, doesn't have a uh, functioning government since uh, since the elections last May, in May 2022, uh, Lebanon failed to establish a government. Uh, so the, the government is the government that was nominated before. No president at all at office, just the office is empty. And there are uh, negotiations to elect, to, to nominate a president. It's like in Israel, the president should be nominated by the parliament, but there is no consensus around that. Um, the, the head of the economic system of the banks uh, just uh, resigned after he was uh, uh, charged in uh, corruption and he's wanted in Europe by the Interpol. So he's a corrupted man, stole a lot of money from the Lebanese. Um, you know, everybody market in, in cash in Lebanon, uh, everybody who can is living in Lebanon. The Lebanese are actually living uh, with the money they get from their uh, brothers and sisters in the diaspora and the Lebanese diaspora outside of Lebanon. Uh, it, it feels like collapse. It is a collapse in the past uh, two three years, and it's just getting worse every day. And since now, uh, uh, um, this person resigned, uh, Riyad Salama resigned. I think the, the head of the bank's uh, system, this is also a problem because uh, people, the financial system is not functioning. And how is Lebanon going to, to market with other countries? How is Lebanon going to get, I don't know, import medications, oil from other countries? All these questions are now open questions and we don't know exactly how this is going to work. Uh, it's the Middle East, I believe that uh, they will find some answers, but it's not solutions. It will not uh, bring the, you know, the solution to the economic, uh, to the Lebanese economy. But uh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to create here a complex picture because the situation is really, really bad, but I cannot say it's Africa. So, so let me <laughs> let me ask you the the immediate question. In the face of such internal fracture within Lebanon, is um, we we remember that one of the accusations against Hezbollah in two thousand and six were you know that the, the, the devastation they brought on Lebanon. So, in its current state, the fragility of the state is that something that may prevent a war or may be a catalyst for a potential confrontation. If Hezbollah wants war, I'm not sure what can prevent the war. If Iran wants war, I'm not sure what can prevent the war. Okay. So the, the, uh, the, the, the dire situation in which Lebanon is in plays no role 
No, um, it plays a role, but it plays the role as long as it goes with the interest of Hezbollah. So if Hezbollah believes that uh, uh, going to war for the land border dispute, for example, okay, which is something that can bring the Lebanese together to a consensus, and after this war, more money will get into Lebanon, I think uh, this is something that for them, in their point of view, uh, worth trying. Uh, maybe they're mistaken okay maybe uh, the europeans will tell them no 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 no. you initiate it i truly don't know but again in the eyes of hezbollah if hezbollah will believe that more that the imf will open its pocket and and uh, give the money to the lebanese that now it is not it is not giving them because the, the lebanese system is not functioning um if Hezbollah will believe that this situation will change, that it has nothing to lose. And I'll add another, another component to this uh, equation, which is the gas. I've said that we are taking the gas out of the water. In the Lebanese side, we don't know whether there is gas in the water. And the gas rig uh, will arrive in the middle of August. We are waiting, and it will take around two to three months to understand what's there. So what's, what's, what, what if there is nothing there? What if there is something there? This right. question definitely influenced uh, the question of war, but I'm saying influence. I'm not saying will determine, because right. again, there are more interests in this, which are internal interests of Hezbollah himself, as I've said, to justify his existence. There are interests of the Iranians. The right. fact that the Iranians are gaining more self-confidence in the Middle East and the fact that they won in Yemen and they won in Syria. Won, by the way, it's not, again, don't go to... A black or white. One, it means that they are there, that the, the rebels in Yemen uh, pres preserve their own territory. It means that in Syria, there is kind of a status quo of sharing of influence between Russia and Iran and, and, and in some areas, Turkey and some areas, uh, a small area, United States. But the bottom line is that the Iranians are establishing their, their uh, presence in the Middle East. And this definitely contributes to their self-confidence to open more fronts against Israel and to ask at least to escalate the situation on the Israeli-Lebanese border, for example. I, I, I have to ask you um, about Iran's brazen activities in the Middle East, just pursuant to what you just mentioned. We know that Iran has Lebanon on a stranglehold through its proxy, Hezbollah. Do you expect, due to uh, raise, rising Iranian self-confidence, that at some point, Iran may come out in the open and declare its control of Lebanon, um, you know, rather than playing a game as if Lebanon is some sort of an independent state? No, I don't think. Why should they? Uh, Hezbollah may come and say, you know, uh, by the way, this is why another motivation to take over Lebanon and distribute the Islamic revolution. So that, that way Hezbollah will take over Lebanon. This is a scenario that is more uh, uh, makes make more makes more sense than a scenario that the Iranians themselves will say we control Lebanon. But I want to say something about the Iranians. We published yesterday a report uh, about the Iranian involvement in Syria and what we have. Yeah, I was about that. But before you touch upon this, I want to touch on the report. Just one more question on the internal issue. How um, how much do you think the recent strife within Israel? the political battle being waged within Israel affects the situation. So you see, we have been talking for quite a while now, and I didn't even mention that. And you can understand that in my point of view, 
it's a component, but it's not the main component. And it's very important to understand. First and foremost, because if we, we look at the reality, the change of policy of Hezbollah didn't happen now. It happened before. It happened during the previous government, and it has nothing to do with the previous government. Right. Very important to note. Yes, like you <laughs> mentioned with the missiles before. Yeah, the missiles were in March, but the presence of Hezbollah on the borderline, as I've said, I saw them a year and a half ago. The change, if we're trying to look at the timeline, the change happened a year and a half ago before the signing of the maritime border dispute. Now, the, again, the, the maritime border agreement was a bad message, but there was no, there weren't too many options. Okay, uh, we needed to take the gas out. We needed to, to send the message to the companies, to the oil and gas companies that they can get the gas out safely. This was very important to our economy. We had to, to deliver a different message to Hezbollah. And here I want to say something about this psychological warfare. So the protest in Israel or the, I don't know, uh, legislation, this internal crisis in Israel, okay, is used for the propaganda. It's a very good fuel for the propaganda of Hezbollah, for the propaganda of the Iranians, and no doubt around that. Is it the reason why Hezbollah is changing his policy? I cannot say that because the policy was changed earlier than that. Right. Okay. Um, you know, the perspective, the complexities you're giving us are incredibly important because people tend to look at things through, you know, black and white. And no one better than you, Sari, to give us all these different shades of gray and beyond. So to complex further the topics at hand, I want to relate to what you just uh, uh, discussed, mentioned the report that you published yesterday about the um, Scientific Studies and Research Center in Syria, the weapons in Syria. Talk to us a little bit about that center, Iran, and how it complicates things further for all of us and all of our viewers. So throughout the years, we try to... Um follow the Iranian involvement in Syria, and by the way, also to compare it to Lebanon. And we try to understand where are the fields of this Iranian involvement. Uh, along the way, what we find in this specific report is the Iranian actually took over the weapon uh, development industry of the Syrians. This is a very famous uh, center, CERS, okay? Uh, everybody a little bit dealt with Syria and know this center. Uh, these are the French initials, CERS, C-E-R-S. Yes, this is the, the initials for uh, French. I can't remember now the initials for uh, English, right. but uh, it is more well known by the, the French initials. This is how it is It is uh, uh, phrased. And, and that's Syria's national military industry. That's the national yes. military complex. Yes, it's supposed to be. But today we see Iranian presence there. What we see is actually the Iranians are bringing their technology for UAVs, for SCADs, for uh, uh, making their missiles accurate, PGMs, precision-guided missiles, bringing all this technology to this center, especially to one institution named uh, 4000. They are, the names are by numbers. Uh, and in this is that, that way they can uh, uh, produce products, these advanced weapons in Syria, instead of smuggling them all the way 2,000 kilometers from Iran through Iraq into Syria. So if, you know, uh, in Armour Center, we published a lot of information about the land corridor of smuggling of weapons from uh, Iran into Syria. What this project is doing is actually to shorten the corridor and actually put the uh, production inside Syria. And that way enables Iran 
to uh, transfer this advanced weapon to its proxies in, in Lebanon, which is Hezbollah, in Syria, and in Iraq. Right. Uh, on top of that, we have found out when we researched this center is that uh, in opposed to what the UN published in 2013, that Syria dismantled from its chemical weapon, there is still production of chemical weapon in Syria. Uh, without, without, we didn't have indications that the Iranians are involved in this, okay? But there is chemical weapon and there is an option that this chemical weapon will get in the hands of Hezbollah, already got in the hands of Hezbollah as well. Uh, Bear in mind, everybody, in 2018, the Syrian regime bombed its, its own citizens, the rebels, uh, 80 kilometers from the Israeli-Syrian border uh, in chemical weapon, killing uh, tens of, of Syrians. So before it is a risk to Israelis, it is a great danger to the Syrians themselves. And actually, it is a, it's, you know, what, the, what Iran is doing in Sers and Sers, its production itself, it's a global danger because we already seen these weapons uh, uh, get into Ukraine, these weapons getting uh, to Venezuela. Uh, what if now the production of these weapons in Syria shortened the corridor for the Russians and not only for the Iranians? I'm, I'm bringing a question. I, I, you know, I truly don't have the information. But you know, when I see the Russians are attacking uh, more and more, you talked about provocations, more and more provocations of the Russians against American forces inside Syria. And I see the production and I see the collaboration between Iran and Russia. This makes me ask even more questions than that they were what was written in our report. So, <laughs> and I think I, you know to add more complexity to an already very complex situation. But um, you know we can you know thank you enough for these insights and the information and the great work you and your team do at the Alma Research and Education Center, casting an eye from Northern Israel right there into these arenas, which some people may think may only be relevant for Israel, but their reach, as you just mentioned, is so far, so much more um, uh, you know, relevant beyond the borders of Israel and the Middle East. Exactly. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to join us and to shed light on these important issues. It still remains to be seen what's going to happen. But one guarantee is that we will continue turning to you, Sarit, for your you know, wise and expert advice on all of these uh, you know, important matters. Thank you so much for all of the great work that you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And to all of our viewers, I'd like to say thank you for watching. For JBS, I'm Shah Razani. Until next time, shalom and lehitav.